Proverbs 14, and we did the first 18 verses last time, so we'll pick up in verse 19. Proverbs 14, let's read verses 19 through 35. There it says, The evil will bow down before the good, and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. The poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. He who despises his neighbor sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Will they not go astray who devise evil? But kindness and truth will be to those who devise good. In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their riches, but the folly of fools is foolishness. A truthful witness saves lives, but he who utters lies is treacherous. In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may avoid the snares of death. In a multitude of people is a king's glory, but in the dearth of people is a prince's ruin. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. A tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness to the bones. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. The wicked is thrust down by his wrongdoing, but the righteous has a refuge when he dies. Wisdom rests in the heart of one who has understanding, but in the heart of fools it is made known. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. The king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely, but his anger toward him who acts shamefully. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give to us, Lord, wisdom and understanding today. Lord, help us to see that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Lord, there to teach us, Lord, so that we might avoid the snares of death. Lord, make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, give us wisdom that manifests itself in understanding. Lord, in knowing how to discern good and evil and how to live properly in this life before you. So Lord, may we be found as those who are upright. Lord, those who are living a godly life. Lord, who are walking in the fear of the Lord. Teach us today, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we'll pick up there in verse 19. Verse 19, which says, The evil will bow down before the good, and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. Here, ultimately, the evil will bow down before the good, right? The wicked will at the gates of the righteous. This is in uh, subversion and in contrast to what is commonly seen in this present life. And that is that the wicked have power, prestige, they have honor. They are the ones in control who have authority. They are the ones who oppress the righteous many times. And it seems as if they're going to get away with it, right? That there will be no recompense for the sins and the oppression that they cause toward the righteous. But here he assures us that ultimately the evil will bow down before the good, that God is going to subvert all things and that the righteous will come out on top and the wicked will bow down before them at the very gates of the righteous. This is as it says in Malachi chapter 4, that we will go out skipping like calves out of the stall and we will tread down the wicked under our feet. God will ultimately on the day of judgment, he will grant vindication to his children against their enemies, and they will be forced to bow down before the good. This is also as it says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 9. He says there that I will make those who call themselves Jews but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. 
I will make them come and bow down before you, and then they will know that I have loved you. He will make them bow down before the the Christians, the saints. Though currently at that time, they are harassing them, they're persecuting them, but ultimately God will make them bow down before them. And when will this be? It'll be on the day of judgment. In the life to come, God will set everything right. Now, sometimes he does it in this life as a testimony or a manifestation of what will be true in the life to come. Such was the case with Haman, who was himself uh, opposing and working against Mordecai and Esther. Yet there at the end, he found himself begging down on his knees, begging Esther for mercy, in which he received none. He can do it in this life, but ultimately God will do it in the life to come. Verse 20, the poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. Here, this is here as a general truth. Generally speaking, in this present world, the poor is hated even by his neighbor. The poor is hated by his neighbor because he has no riches and therefore he can't benefit me. And this is how men generally are. They are lovers of self. They love themselves, and then they love people who are able to help them, who are able to be a benefit to them. And because the poor man has no riches, he has nothing by which to benefit me, his neighbor hates him. But those who love the rich are many. This is the opposite. Those who have a lot of money, everyone wants to be their friend. Everyone fawns over them. Everyone uh, says that they're best friends and they're swell chaps and they love them to death. But do they really love them? What do they really love about them? They love their riches. Because if all of their riches were gone, where would they be? All of their friends would disappear just as sure as it is. Well, this is here as a warning to teach us to not be like this. We should not befriend only those who are rich and who can benefit us, nor should we despise those who are poor and who cannot benefit us, but rather we are to love all men. We are to love both the poor and the rich. We are to honor those, and especially if there is righteousness in them. It shouldn't matter that a person is poor. If they are of the household of faith, we should love them and we should do good to them. We should do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. So this is given as a warning to us that we should not be like the world. This is how the world thinks and operates. They hate the poor and they love the rich, but we ought not to be that way. We shouldn't think in those terms. Verse 21, he who despises his neighbor sins. But happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Here, this is a continuation of what he has already said. He who despises his neighbor sins. Well, why does he despise his neighbor? According to verse 20, because his neighbor is poor. So if you despise your neighbor because your neighbor is poor, you are committing a sin against God. But on the contrast, if you are gracious to the poor, you are blessed or you will be happy. Right, You're happy and you're blessed because your kindness to the poor neighbor shows the good fruit that is in you, the good fruit of God and the work of the Spirit that is alive and well in this person. And it shows that you have the blessing of God upon your life. James chapter 2, James 2, verses 1 to 7 
says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there, are, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and says, You sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? So there, they are showing this favoritism that is spoken of in Proverbs chapter 4. Friends to the rich, but despising those who are poor. But he says that this shouldn't be the way it is in the church. We shouldn't do this, but rather we need to judge a man by his character, but also we should do good to all men, right? Isn't the poor man created in the image of God just as much as the rich man, right? All of them are created and all of them possess the image of God. So all of them are worthy of being honored in the proper way and shown respect in the proper way. We should not despise them. It says in Psalm 41.1, How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. There is blessing for helping the helpless. And that is what he's speaking of here as well. Verse 23, Will they not go astray who devise evil? But kindness and truth will be to those who devise good. Those who go astray are those who devise evil. When they devise evil, they will go astray. How can they not? Of course they're going to go astray from the straight way of the Lord, and ultimately they will go to stray to eternal perdition. But kindness and truth will be with those who devise good. Those who do good, kindness and truth will follow them all the days of their life, and they will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As it says in Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy, he says, will follow me all the days of my life. Well, those who do good, who devise good, who are thinking and scheming, as it were, on how they can be a blessing, how they can do good, how they can do what is righteous in the sight of God. This is what is occupying their mind. Well, kindness and truth, the kindness of God and the truthfulness of God will be with them all the days of their life. But those who are constantly scheming to do evil, they will go astray and they will come under the wrath of God. Verse 23, in all labor there is profit, but mere talk only leads to poverty. Here, this is true both in the natural world and in the spiritual world, right? When there is hard work, when there is labor, there is going to be profit. A person who is a diligent, hardworking man. Now, again, this assumes that the society is just in that there is a reward for hard work. So we're not talking about someone who is enslaved or in a corrupt society or in communism, where no matter how hard you work, you can never get ahead. But in a just, fair society, somebody who is a diligent, hard worker, is he going to have more profit, be more successful than someone who is a lazy bum? Right? If they are starting on an equal footing, and one person is a hard worker, and the other one is not hardworking, well, the hardworking man will be more profitable. He will have a greater increase than the one who does nothing. 
So when there is labor in this way, then there is profit. And that is true both in the natural world, say with a farmer or with uh, an electrician, a plumber, whatever the occupation is, a computer programmer, a lawyer, whatever Mike does back there, whatever it is, a student, it, it doesn't matter. If you are a hard worker, you will profit. And then also in the spiritual as well. In terms of discipline, in terms of the knowledge of God, knowledge of the will of God, increase in faith, can we grow in our faith without reading the Bible, without giving ourselves to prayer? And sometimes those things are described as a labor, a labor of love, something that we must be diligent, that we must pursue, that we must work hard to do these things. Well, the person who reads his Bible and is disciplined to do so, he will profit more, he will grow and have more godliness, more faith than the one who neglects the word of God who neglects prayer, who does not give himself over to the spiritual disciplines. Then in verse 23, mere talk leads only to poverty. Those who are big talkers, they have big dreams, they have big plans, they like to talk in idleness about all the things that they're going to do, right? They boast a lot about how successful they're going to be, but they never actually do anything. They never actually set their feet in their hands to accomplish all the things that they speak about. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get this degree and that degree, and I'll get this job, and I'll make this much money, and I'll be able to retire at this age because I've, I've done all these things. Well, all of that requires that you put your hand to the plow and that you actually go and you fulfill and you accomplish all the things that you do. But there are many people who are big talkers. They talk a lot and they say all of their intentions and all of the things that they are going to do and all that they're going to accomplish, but then they never actually fulfill it. They don't work hard to do the things that they've set before them. Well, if that is the case with a person, it will lead to poverty. They say that they're going to go plant their field, but then they never do it. They say that they're going to get this job, but then they never do it. They say that they're going to save up this amount of money, but they don't do those things. They don't have the discipline to do it. They're just big talkers. And there are many people who are like this. Verse 24, the crown of the wise is their riches, but the folly of fools is foolishness. The crown of the wise is their riches. Now here, he doesn't mean that if a person has riches, that shows that he is a wise man. He means it in the sense that a wise man who has riches, his riches are a crown in that the way he uses his riches is, brings him glory and honor because he is liberal with his money, not like the liberals, but liberal in the right way. He is very gracious. He's very generous. He helps the poor. He's giving and supporting the ministry. He's using his riches in a way that brings honor and glory to God. And in this way, it brings honor and glory to him. The way he dispenses his wealth. Because there are very few people who are, have the ability to obtain riches, to possess riches, and to do so in a way that brings glory and honor to God. But when the wise man uses his riches in a way that is glorious, it brings great honor upon him. Great honor upon him. Such as... A man like Abraham, a man like Job, or like David, Solomon, who were very wealthy men, but their riches weren't a detriment to their righteousness, but rather an occasion for them to express, to manifest their righteousness, their wisdom in this present world. But on the contrast, the folly of fools is foolishness. The way the fool, right, if, you, if he has riches, 
the way he uses his riches displays how foolish he is because he uses his riches to indulge in sin, the lusts of the flesh, worldly pleasures. He's not using his wealth to make friends in heaven, to store up treasures in the life to come. He's just using it to have a good time in this present life. So here, the commonality is the possession of riches. But with the wise man, the riches bring him glory and honor. But with the foolish man, his riches and the way he uses his riches only display and to further verify his foolishness, that he's filled with folly. So in this case, riches neither make one wise, nor do they make one a fool. But the way that one uses their riches manifests whether they are wise or whether they are a fool. So if God grants wealth to us, and certainly in a sense he has, right? in terms of human history and in terms of the rest of the world, yes, certainly there are other people in America, in Shawnee, in Meeker, to come to wherever we live, that may have more money than we do. But when you compare what we have to the rest of the world, we are all very wealthy, right? We have a great manner of life and a a standard of living that few people have ever dreamed of. So we need to be very diligent in the way that we use the wealth that God has entrusted to us and that it would be a crown of glory upon us, not something that brings shame and ridicule in the way that we dispense with the wealth that God has bestowed on us. 25, a truthful witness saves lives, but he who utters lies is treacherous. A truthful witness saves lives. This is true both in this life, say in the court system, if someone has been falsely accused, a truthful witness who comes and testifies to the innocence of this man saves his life. Instead of the man being executed for this crime that he didn't commit, the truthful witness, through his truthful testimony, saves the life of this man. But also, primarily, this is true in regards to spiritual things. Because a truthful witness to the Word of God, to the truths of God's Word, that saves men from hell. It saves them from eternal damnation when we teach them what the Bible says about God, about His judgment, about man's sin, about the way of salvation through Jesus Christ. When we give a faithful, truthful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it saves the souls of men from going to eternal hell, to eternal death. 1 Timothy 4.16 1 Timothy Chapter 4, verse 16 says, Pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. There, close attention to your teaching. And whenever he's teaching the word of God, is he not giving a witness? He's testifying concerning what God says on all of the various topics that the Word of God addresses. Well, in giving this faithful, truthful witness or testimony, persevering in this, it is ensuring salvation both for himself and for his hearers, for both of them. So we need to be truthful, whether that be to events that we see in this life or whether that be truthful to what the Bible tells us, concerning the life to come, concerning who God is in the way of salvation, we need to give a truthful witness 
and so be the source of saving lives, not destroying them. And that is the contrast. He who utters lies is treacherous. Somebody who tells and spreads lies is a treacherous man. Because one, if he's lying about people in this life, it's going to ruin their reputation. It's going to destroy them. And then if he is lying about this person and their guilt or innocence in the court of law, then this person is either going to be uh, exonerated, who deserves to be punished, or an innocent person is going to be declared guilty, who declares to be innocent. Right? He, his lies are going to lead to treachery to the subversion of justice, and innocent people are going to suffer because of this. But then primarily in terms to the Word of God, to the things necessary for salvation. Someone who is uttering lies to people, not telling them what's true, but telling them lies concerning God and the way of salvation, this is very treacherous because it's going to destroy their souls. It's going to lead them to eternal hell. This is like in 1 Kings 21, 11 to 14, when Naboth, when Ahab wanted the vineyard of Naboth, and Naboth was unwilling to give it to him or to sell it to him, Jezebel conspired this treacherous plan against Naboth, and they had these worthless men, sons of the devil, who got up and gave false testimony concerning Naboth saying that he had blasphemed both God and the king, and then he was stoned to death as a result. But it was all based upon lies. He had done neither of those things, and yet he died in this way, a very treacherous thing to do to an innocent man. And it came about through the uttering of lies. Verse 26, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence. And his children have a refuge. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. This is what we were saying this morning in our sermon today. When we fear the Lord, it leads to diligence. And when we are diligent, it leads to confidence. We have assurance, we have hope that we truly are children of God. So do we want strong confidence? Well, of course we do. We want to know, we want to have confidence that God is for us, that God loves us, that we are God's children, that our sins have been forgiven. Well, if we want strong confidence, then what do we have to have? We have to have the fear of the Lord. We cannot have strong confidence without the fear of the Lord. And this is why, again, in so many churches and so much of Christianity, where there is no fear of the Lord, they have this very cavalier approach to God. The way that they address him, the way that they talk about him, there's no reverence, there's no fear, there's no awe, there's no trembling before God in any way. They won't talk about judgment, they won't talk about hell, they won't talk about these things because they don't want people to fear God in that way. Well, that's depriving people of good. Talk about treacherous, right? We're depriving them of good because here, without the fear of the Lord, we cannot have strong confidence, we need this fear of God. 1 John 5, 13 to 15. 1 John 5, 13 to 15. says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests 
which we have asked from him. Here, the confidence we have to come before God. But when we come before God, we cannot come however we please. When we're coming to God in prayer, we have to pray according to his will. And what will ensure that we are praying according to his will? The fear of the Lord. A person who doesn't fear God just will say whatever they want, and they'll ask for whatever they want. It is the fear of the Lord that gives to us this strong confidence to come before God and to ask God to make our requests known of Him and to have confidence that God will hear us and will answer us during this time. So here he is commending the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. The man who fears the Lord and who teaches his children to fear the Lord, that man will have a refuge and his children will have a refuge as well. And what is the refuge that we need? A refuge from what? From the wrath of God. From the wrath of God and the judgment of God that is coming upon this world. We need a refuge and the fear of the Lord teaches us to put our hope and our trust and our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And the fear of the Lord teaches us to do that. And when we do that, then we have a refuge for the day of wrath, where we will be preserved unlike the rest of the world. This is the same as we read this morning from Hebrews 11, verse 7. In reverence, Noah built the ark. And the ark was for Noah a refuge from the judgment of God. And it was a refuge not only for Noah, but for who else? For his wife and his children as well. In the fear of the Lord, he built that. And this is what we need as well. The fear of the Lord so that we have a refuge and then teach our children to put their hope in Christ as well so that they too will have a refuge during the time of judgment. 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. Here, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. So when we're talking about the fear of the Lord, we are talking about salvation. We have to be talking about salvation. This is why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what is the wisdom that the Bible is granting to man? It's making us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's what the fear of the Lord is teaching us, how to be wise unto salvation, how to have our sins forgiven, how to be reconciled to God. This is the very wisdom of God, and it is founded on the fear of the Lord, who he is and what he will do against sin. We have to have our mind occupied with this truth, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, his hatred of sin, the day of judgment, these things are all necessary. A man must understand these things in order to be saved. But when he understands and he believes these things, it results in a fountain of life. Is that good or bad? A fountain of life. Doesn't everyone want to drink from a fountain of life? That's a good thing. But here, can we have the fountain of life without the fear of the Lord? No, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. The fountain is the fear of the Lord. We cannot have access to that fountain without the fear of the Lord. And again, this is the treachery that is going on in many churches today. There is no fear of God. 
They do not fear the Lord. They don't want a God like that. But how can you have the fountain of life without the fear of the Lord? How can you have strong confidence in a refuge without the fear of the Lord? How can a man put his faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins if he doesn't even know that he's a sinner and he doesn't know about God's hatred and judgment against sin? These things are necessary. These truths are necessary to be taught so that we will have the fear of the Lord and we will go to the fountain of life to have our sins washed away. And who is this fountain of life other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? He is the fountain of life. John 4, 14. And Jesus teaches us the fear of the Lord. John 4, 14 says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The water that Christ gives us, which is his own person and his life, his work, this water springs up to eternal life. That is the fountain of life that we need to drink from. We need to drink from Christ by faith, partaking of him, and then it leads to life. And this fountain of life makes us avoid the snares of death, the snares of eternal damnation, that the sinners and the wicked, this is what they will experience. They will fall into the snares, the traps of death and eternal damnation. But when we fear God, and we drink from the fountain of life, who is Christ, then we avoid the snares of death. We will not be cast into the lake of fire, but our portion will be with the tree of life. Verse 28. In a multitude of people is a king's glory, but in the dearth of people is a prince's ruin. Here, in a multitude of people is a king's glory. A king who is ruling over a land, when that king is wise, when he enacts policies that are just, that are righteous, that are good, that lead to prosperity, that are a benefit to the people of that land, it leads to a multitude of people, right? Because of his wisdom and the justice, the righteousness by which he is ruling over his land, he creates a society that is good for the people, for them to live in, for them to be prosperous in, for them to marry and have children in. And as a result, there is an increase in his land. There's more and more and more people, both being born within the land, right? Because they're not needlessly dying in foreign wars, like it's been happening in America. Also, many people from other lands, they want to come live there because they don't want to live under their tyrants, but they want to come live in this place of prosperity. There's a multitude of people in this case. But in a dearth of people is a prince's ruin. When a prince is self-indulgent, whenever he is a tyrant over his people, whenever his policies lead to ruin, destruction, misery, right? there's going to be a decrease in the population. Whenever, because he's such an arrogant man, he's constantly getting embroiled in all of these wars and foreign conflicts, going and waging and making war against uh, surrounding territories, there's going to be fighting, young men are going to die. And if the young men die, 
then they're not going to be marrying the young women. They're not going to be having children. The population is going to decrease and decrease and decrease because of their own poverty, ruin, misery, wars, conflicts. This is what happens. So the manifestation of the justice and the goodness of the ruler, right? His glory as a ruler is seen in the happiness, in the prosperity of the people. Or his folly is seen in the ruin and misery of the people. And we should pray that we would have good rulers. Good rulers that are benefiting the Christian church, according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, so that we can live a tranquil, quiet life in all godliness, so that we can get married, have children, raise our families in the fear of the Lord, meet together, worship God, and live a peaceful and a quiet life. Verse 29, he who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. The one who is slow to anger has great understanding. He shows great discernment. He understands his own nature. He understands human nature. He understands situations. He understands how to respond, and he has self-control. And self-control ultimately comes from the fruit of the Spirit. This is one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. And when a person has control over his anger, Whenever he is offended or someone gives offense to him and he does not fly off the handle but is able to manage his passions, control them so that he gives a soft answer, so that he is reasonable. He doesn't take unnecessary offense. Now, he's not saying that he never becomes angry because there are times where we should become angry, but we should be slow to anger. Very, very slow. It should be considered. We should be uh, reasonable in what we're doing. We should not be quick-tempered in the things that we do. So a person who is slow to anger shows that he has great understanding. Great understanding of the will of God, of the way of righteousness, of the fruit of the Spirit, of his own human nature, of how to control and respond uh, properly in various situations. But he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. A quick-tempered man one who has no control over his passions. Whenever someone gives him offense, his anger rises up within him, and then immediately he begins to let loose his tongue. Right? Usually it's the tongue first, and then sometimes it's the fist afterwards, but for sure it is the tongue. And he begins to blaspheme. He begins to swear and curse. He's ranting and raving. He's foaming at the mouth. And in that heat of the moment, people say very stupid things. Things that they would not say if they were under control. And they exalt foolishness, folly, right? They say these types of things and they manifest how evil, degenerate, sinful, and wicked their heart is. Because when that passion is there, the true nature of their heart comes out. They lose self-control, which is self-restraint. And their tongue is given free reign to what is really in their heart, And a man who may not be a swearer commonly in his day-to-day conversation, all of a sudden, he begins to drop words very colorfully, very creatively in the use of these kinds of words. And he exalts his own folly, what showing and revealing what is in his heart. And does that help the situation at all? When we're quick-tempered and we fly off the handle and explode in this way, 
Does it help resolve the conflict? Does it bring any uh, benefit at all to what is taking place? No, it only exasperates it and makes it worse and worse, right? And there's been many relationships ruined because people don't have self-control. They're not able to control their anger, but they're quick-tempered, and then they say things that they later regret, but now the damage is already done, there's hurt there, and then oftentimes, because people are so proud, they won't go back and apologize. And then they just dig their heels in, and 20 years go by and you never talk to the person again. And you're both in misery the rest of your life. This is what happens because people cannot control their tongue and speak in a composed and in a mannered way. Verse 30, a tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness to the bones. Here, a tranquil heart. This would be the heart that is slow to anger. It's a tranquil heart. It's a calm heart. It's a composed heart. This is a redeemed heart. A redeemed heart that is tranquil. It's not in turmoil. It's not in conflict all the time, right? This is the new heart that is operating under the principles of grace. Well, the tranquil heart is life to the body. When a person has this kind of composure, when they have this heart that is tranquil in this way, that's not given to worry, it's not given to anger, it's not easily offended, it's gracious, it's full of compassion in this way, that is not only beneficial for our spiritual life, but also for our physical life, right? He says it there, that it is life to the body. This is a benefit for everything. We're not stressed out all the time. We're able to sleep at night so that we get a good night's rest, and it makes us more healthy. We're not as susceptible to disease and sickness. We don't die as early as we would if we're always in turmoil all the time. It's beneficial to our life and even to our body. But passion is rottenness to the bones. A passionate man, one who has no control over his passions, one whose lust of the flesh controls his body and controls his heart, this is rottenness to the bones. It leads to turmoil and misery in his body. And many times you see these people that are giving themselves over to various sinful ways, and it affects not only their soul, but also even their body. You can see it in their body in the way that they are worn. Right? You see these people who are addicted to drugs. And you're like, oh, she's 30 years old. She looks like she's 60 years old, right? This is what happens. You see a picture of them in high school, and they're young, and they're fair looking. And then five years later, they've been on meth for a couple of years, and they look like they're 65 years old. And it's like, what happened to her? Well, when you give yourself to sin in this way, this is what happens. And this is true in all areas. Whatever sin it is, when a person is enslaved by that sin, it will destroy everything about him. Not only their soul, but even their body will be destroyed by sin, by the effects of the sinful, evil heart. Verse 31. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. Here, the one who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. He taunts the maker of the poor and his own maker. Whenever you're oppressing the poor man, you're oppressing God, you're taunting God who created that poor man, who made him in his image. And when you taunt that man, you are mocking and ridiculing the God who made that man. 
and you are taunting God in this way. Well, what will God do to you one day? Well, the very thing that you've done to the poor, he will do to you. You've done it to the poor man unjustly, but God will justly do it to you. But then the converse is the gracious one honors God. We honor God by being gracious to those who are in need. This is, according to James chapter 1, pure and undefiled religion. Whenever we are helping those who are in need, we are loving our neighbor as ourselves by doing good to them, we are actually loving God. For how can we love God who we do not see without loving our neighbor who we do see? The way that we show, or one of the ways we show our love for God, is by love for our neighbor, for our fellow man. And when we are helping relieve the needs of those who are poor, their oppression, then we are honoring our maker. And we are showing that our profession, our religion, is pure and undefiled. It is a true confession. It is not a vain profession of faith. Proverbs chapter 22 Proverbs 22, verse 2, says, The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. Whether we are rich or whether we are poor, we are united in this way. God is the maker of all men. And all men, whether rich or poor, bear the image of God. Because God created man in his own image. And when we see a poor man... We ought to see the image of God in him and whatever we can do to legitimately help him and minister to his needs, then we ought to do so. And when we do, we are honoring our maker. Verse 32, the wicked is thrust down by his wrongdoing, but the righteous has a refuge when he dies. Here, the wicked man will be thrust down by his own wrongdoings. His sins will return on his own head. They will be the noose that ties him on the day of judgment, and he will be hung by his own sins. They will thrust him down. It says in Psalm 7, verse 14, it says, Behold, he travails with wickedness. He conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out, and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return on his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate. There, his mischief, it will come down on his own head. And this is what he's saying here. The wicked, they're going to be thrust down by their own wrongdoing. All of the sins that they've committed will return upon them, and whatever they have sown, this is what they will reap on the day of judgment. But the righteous has a refuge when he dies. The righteous man who is righteous, not by his own works, but righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, he has a refuge for the day of judgment, for the time when he dies. He has the blood of Christ speaking for him so that when he dies, he will not go to hell, but he will go to heaven and he will be there with Christ and with God for all eternity. 33. Wisdom rests in the heart of the one who has understanding, but in the hearts of fools it is made known. Here, wisdom is manifested, it will be revealed in a person, whether they have wisdom or whether they have foolishness. 
Wisdom in the heart will be manifested or made known through understanding. Understanding relates to knowing how to live and how to respond to whatever situations a person faces in this life. When a man has wisdom in his heart, this wisdom will be manifested in him living in an understanding way, showing that he understands the will of God. He understands the word of God and he knows how to apply it, how to practice it in all of the various situations that he faces in this life. Don't we face many things in this life? Every day we have a thousand decisions to make and we need to make those decisions based upon the will of God. Well, when a man has wisdom in his heart, then his understanding will be seen in the way that he lives his present life. But the fool, his heart, because it has foolishness in it, it also will be made known. He will also face many different situations every single day. And the way that he lives and reacts and responds to those situations will show that he is a fool. So as we read earlier, a wise man, he has a person who is a jerk toward him and he's giving offense to him. But instead of being quick-tempered, he's composed, he's calm, he's collected, he answers with a soft answer, he's not easily offended. And he does that because he knows a soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. He knows that this man is trying to provoke me, this man is not helping the situation, and if I behave like him, then I'm just going to make it worse and worse and worse. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give a soft answer and this will turn away his wrath. He'll be more calm and composed as a result of seeing me do this and then we'll be able to resolve whatever situation is here. So in that way, this man faced the situation because he has wisdom in his heart. This wisdom manifested itself in the way that he responded in this situation, revealing him to be a man of understanding. Then you take a fool. And the same situation comes upon him. But because he doesn't have understanding, he's easily offended. He's provoked. He loves himself. He doesn't care what anyone says. I don't care what anyone says. And I'm going to let this guy have it. He's going to scream at me. I'm going to scream back. I'm going to actually, I'm going to turn the heat up on him. And then it just descends into madness and chaos. The same situation, the one manifests his understanding, showing that he has wisdom in the heart. The other one manifests foolishness, showing that he's, his heart is filled with folly, with folly and with evil. Okay, next, 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Here we see that what brings God's displeasure, whether that be a man, whether that be a family, or whether that be a nation, it is sin. Sin is what brings displeasure from God. Well, when there is a nation and there is righteousness found in that nation, that nation will be exalted. It is glorious for them. It is a good place to live, a good place to raise your family, a good place to work, to live, because the laws of the society reflect the righteousness. So it's going to be a much happier place, a better place to live. Less sin will be there than in a place where it doesn't have these good laws, and it will exalt it. There'll be more prosperity. There'll be more happiness. Everyone else is going to want to move there. right? Isn't that what we've seen in America over the last several hundred years? Everyone wants to move here. We don't want to move to Sudan. Who wants to go live in that place? Who wants to go live in North Korea? 
No one is migrating from America to North Korea. But every single person in North Korea, if they could, where would they want to come? They'd all want to come here except for the leader. That'd be the only one who would want to stay. And this is because there were some good laws, some righteousness, some justice. There were ethics, there were standards that were ingrained into the fabric of this society in this country at its founding that were beneficial and promoted a just society and brought a lot of prosperity and happiness and exaltation to this nation. Right, this is the way it is. But when there is sin, it is a disgrace to any people. That is where we find ourselves today. Because whatever was there in previous days, many, much of that has been lost and it is long gone in terms of America, in terms of the Judeo-Christian value and ethic upon which the country was founded. Now there is all sorts of sin that is being promoted, that is being paraded out in the broad daylight sins of such a perversion that you can't hardly even speak about these things. And these things bring great disgrace, great disgrace upon a nation when this is the case. And this is what brings disgrace on any nation. It is their sin, and that is the basis for God's judgment against them. Right In Revelation, when it talks about Babylon, Babylon the Great being a representation of the wicked world, the wicked nations and the wicked cities of this world. It talks about her being filled with immorality, with injustice, the shedding of blood, adultery, right? This is how it has been with all of these wicked nations throughout the years. They give themselves over to these sins and ultimately it brings disgrace to them because God's judgment will fall upon them. So what we should pray for and desire then is that in the nation in which we live, there would be righteousness. That there would be true righteousness found in the believers and that their influence in the society would lead to at least a civic or social righteousness in the laws of the land. So that there is at least you know, proper understanding of good and evil. There's proper punishments, just punishments for when people commit crimes. Because while again, you cannot make a person become a Christian through the laws of the land, you can restrain their sin. Sin can be restrained so that people do not act upon all of the evil impulses in their heart if there are good punishments, just punishments that actually thwart people from committing the sins that they want to commit. This is what we need and what we should pray for. 35, the king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely but his anger is toward him who acts shamefully. A wise servant who does the will of his master will have the favor of his king, of his master. But the one who is shameful in his actions, who does not do the will of his master, his anger will be against him. And Jesus speaks of this in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 Verses 41 to 48. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward, whom his master will put in charge of his servants, to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, 
My master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act according to his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they have entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. So there, the blessed slave is the one the master finds doing his will. This is the faithful servant. And he has the favor of his king, or here, of his master. But if he is unfaithful, he's acting shamefully, he's drinking, he's getting drunk, he's beating his fellow slaves, then the master will come when he's not expecting it, and he will cut him into pieces. And so, we are servants of Christ. This is one of the things that we claim. We claim to be Christians, we claim to be children of God, We claim to be servants of Christ. Well, if we want the favor of our king, of our master, then how should we live? We should be faithful. Faithful, wise slaves of Christ. But if we behave shamefully by practicing sin, by being unfaithful to him, by beating the fellow servants, by getting drunk, by committing immorality, by doing the things that the world does, then when the master comes... He will repay us according to what he finds us doing. We will not have his favor, but instead we will receive a severe beating from the master. And we don't want Jesus to beat us on the day of judgment. So then, how should we live? Not as unwise, but as wise. As faithful, wise servants. So let's then commit ourselves to doing such and to living this way throughout this week and pray that God would give us the strength to do so.